1: everybody, welcome to Nessun Dormer, your regular 80s and 90s football chat. Welcome along. I am Lee Calvert and joining me this week is the man from the Guardian and many books on football. And for the avoidance of doubt, definitely not the rugby league winger who played 150 matches for Wigan, Lee and Warrington, among others. That's Rob, Mr Rob Smythe. Hello.
2: Hello. Uh, I'm, I'm quite offended by that. The, the suggestion that I wouldn't be in any fit shape to play rugby league.
1: <laughs> well, it's just, what, I'm what, not saying that, I'm just saying it's well, it, that you're not him.
2: Well, yeah, that's probably true. I'm,
1: hello. And back after a long, too long a hiatus, really, I don't think you've been with us since episode three, is uh, is sometime cricket Tom commentator and full-time uh, scouse legend, Mr. Gary Naylor. Hello, Gary.
0: <laughs> ah, hello. It's great to be back. <laughs>
1: uh, thank you for listening, everybody. And for those of you who have subscribed already, there are quite a few of you. I know that. Thanks very much. We're available on Acast on Apple Podcasts, and you can put us in the RSS feed into your favourite pod player as well. Should you wish to tell us what you reckon about anything that goes on, then you can get in touch with us on Twitter at nessundormapod. You can get in touch with the website, nessundormapod.com. And on email, you can get in touch with us, contact at nessundormapod.com. Coming up in this episode, we're going to have another journeyman of the week. Uh, We're going to have a good old, long old chat about arguably Everton's greatest ever season. And we'll come on to whether that is the greatest ever season as we talk about it. But first of all, I'd like a nominate, to nominate a player for the underrated Hall of Fame, which I am still determined to make into a thing, despite <laughs> the fact of the faces that that Rob and Gary are pulling at me right now with that idea. But uh, it's yeah, shaking their heads. I'm going to keep plugging away with it. So we've been trying. We've named a few players we think are underrated as we've done a few episodes of this, and I'm going to start with I'm going to start us off with one this week, Mr. Dennis Wise, tiny, slightly cross-eyed. Remembered mostly for being a bit of a wind up merchant, and of course he was all of those things. Although, in many ways, I kind of admire his barely concealed shithousery. <laughs> and I, th- I think mainly because, it, from memory, and I could be wrong, so correct me wrong, it, it was more needly than maiming. I'm oh yeah, fair absolutely. point. You know, he yeah, didn't, he that, didn't that, go and really... like double two footed knees on people. He just used to wind people up, didn't he?
2: occasionally he did but yeah generally like a really good example that comes to mind is a United fans when Chelsea beat them 5-0 and he got in a tangle with Nicky Button I think from memory pinched him
1: yeah he did a cow close, bite on the back of his very leg very close to a personal
2: yeah. area yeah, yeah. and of course Button then reacts and gets sent off I mean it's textbook textbook shithousery as you say
1: but what I liked about him was is that he, he could use both feet and it's still I'm still absolutely staggered by the number of professional footballers that still can't use both feet how does that even happen I mean, seriously, how does it even happen? How do people come through an academy from the age of 12 and get to 21 and professional football that can only use one foot? I don't understand. He was, he was um, a large part of the transition that Chelsea made during the nineties, the late 90s. He was in the Keegan Euro 2000 campaign, although that, that's not a very good advert for saying that he was underrated, I suppose.
2: Well, if he played more, they might not have made such a mess of it, but that's an, another thing we'll get to.
1: Well he was he was the he was the latest in a very long clinical depression inducing line of solutions to England's left sided problem. <laughs> wasn't he? I think he was stuck out on the left for two games in the year two thousand, wasn't he?
2: Yeah but it was a weird kind of system wasn't it because he had Keegan just had a mixture of basically defenders and defensive midfielders and, and then like forwards with very little kind of
1: <laughs> in between. <laughs> you mean it wasn't thought out a Kevin Keegan formation. <laughs> you you I don't believe it. Yeah so that um He then, he got to, he left Chelsea in 2001. He went to Leicester, of course, was sacked for breaking Callum Davidson's (laughs) jaw, which I must stress for those who don't know about this incident, that wasn't an opposition person. That was his own teammate on a pre-season tour he did that to. But I kind of love that as well because he is literally punching above his weight most of the time. (laughs)
0: As he did in the famous taxi incident uh, that uh, happened in the mid-90s as well. So his shithousery was uh, was more extensive, we might say, off the field than on the field, but it was more uh, pixie-ish nuisance on the field. But off the field, it was a bit different.
1: He scored quite a few goals as well, more goals than people give him credit for, I think. He kind of had two phases, didn't he? One as a, a
2: winger at Wimbledon, and then I think early in his days at Chelsea, and then he graduated to become, I thought he was, in the late 90s, early at Chelsea, I thought he was an excellent defensive midfielder, probably the best English defensive midfielder, if not the best in England. Um, and he was a you're right, he was a really important part of that team under Viali that won a few trophies, almost won the league. Um, I suspect that people are grudging just because a lot of people think he's a prick. It. <laughs> well,
1: but, yeah, it's hard, hard to won, judge him objectively.
2: Yeah
0: he he played in two fairly unpopular sides i i first saw him at plow lane playing for wimbledon and he was a he was a bit of a pound store aaron lennon for want of a better word he was a short winger who who looked to beat his man he wasn't as quick as aaron lennon but he had the discipline and uh, as all of those wimbledon players had they were drilled and drilled and drilled into the wimbledon way and he was he was you know, a really important part of, of, of that, uh, of that team. He was, he was not the most, uh, the, the biggest shithouse in that team. Cause he had plenty of them, including Vinnie Jones and, and lots of others, but he reinvented himself as a, as a kind of, uh, of almost, I thought Robert, a kind of early regista style English player. I mean, I saw him at, at Chelsea running, running the match and, you know, there's something of nominative determinism in his name because he was both a menace, but he was, also an extremely knowledgeable and wise player he could he could find uh, space anywhere on the field and his range of passing was was excellent um, he could shield the ball um, he made Chelsea tick I think I don't know whether his career overlapped with Zola but I think towards the yes, end of his it, career his main job was to give the ball to Zola but that in itself is uh, an important part of, of anybody yeah, indeed, who's yeah. playing in a team with Zola but he was he was really really very good as say as a deep-lying midfield player who who would choose passes make make good decisions and not give the ball away um, he probably wasn't as good as a, a Paul Scholes but he was certainly he was certainly only at half level below and perhaps does fall into that category of players who had they been given a longer run for England or more faith shown in them could have developed into a, a 50 or 60 cap international player I suspect he got about 25.
2: The problem was there weren't there weren't really many opportunities because if we just look at his caps actually while we're talking he got 21, no, 21 yeah. 21. But the problem is, Ince was so good until around 98 that there was no real vacancy then, and there, and there were two years maybe between, or two or three years between the emergence of Gerrard that I think Wise should have played more. Pretty much when Keegan was in charge, um, but apart from that, I just don't think there were that many opportunities. In, Ince was magnificent before his legs went. Yeah, but they were different kinds of players. Yeah, I mean, but they played in the the
0: were. Yeah, I know what they were, you mean. They about... were... Box to box players, where where Wise was more economical in his movement, and he looked to, to spray passes. That's why I'm saying him more of a a kind of regista uh, rather play, than a box to box man.
2: You're not going to play Wise and Gascoigne, are you? Uh, well, that's... When you play into Gascoigne.
0: Yeah, I mean that they, they are the they are the the endless conundrum. We we look at overseas teams and you know we always manage to have Iniesta and Xavi or something playing in a Spanish team where we're constantly trying to fit two midfielders who seem chalk and cheese or, or something throughout the history it seems of English midfields whereas other countries seem to solve this problem.
1: I think, um, um, yeah. I, th- I think I think, the point is I think the point is has been proven by your conversation you just had really is that he he's not remembered as a very very good footballer. I don't no, not, not or not that. enough. He's remembered more for you know making shouting yeah. and screaming as the cup was being lifted in '86. What's that whole episode?
2: Can um, can start a fight in an empty room? Yeah, yeah. I do like that. Yeah, you're right. Be, I think he'll always be remembered for that, definitely. Yeah. Which probably isn't entirely, and, fair, but and, equally.
1: And now the celebrity jungle, of course, because that's where he is as we record this episode. He's in. I'm a celebrity, he? yeah. Is he? He's not yeah. going to break someone's jaw, is he? He's very calm. He's remarkably calm, but very yeah, but determined. On the, very determined on the challenges. But he's going to lose yeah. it at some point, probably, and dislocate someone's arm or something. Just one last
2: point: given the importance of the role, and I agree with Gary about his passing and the whole kind of deep lying, a playmaker might be pushing it. But anyway, you you think of the people who managed him and made him certainly a regular in that most important position, Hullet and Viali towards the end of his Chelsea career. Mm. I mean, those are people who know not that role from experience, but from playing alongside some. Quality. They know what it looks like, don't they? Exactly. So it's quite. I think that's quite a big compliment. And actually, and you're right, he did play well alongside Zola towards the end of um, his Chelsea career.
0: I mean, I was at Stamford Bridge watching a match and I think I turned to my brother after about 40 minutes because it was a bit of a revelation to me. And I think I can recall really clearly saying to him, everything's going through wise. (laughs) Everything is going through wise. And it just wasn't... Kind of expected that that he had the brains to do that, and he had the the physical attributes to do it, being such a a small man. But everything was going through wise, and as you say, they were managers who knew how to get the most out of a, a midfield uh, player, and they showed a lot of faith in him more than
2: England did. And just one last thing: his set pieces were terrific, really, really good. He used to get lovely
1: dip on them. I can always see him pick both hands in the air and just dropping one on someone's head. Yeah, but he's, it's interesting when you said that he was like a pound shop Aaron Lennon. But he was a—I always saw Aaron Lennon as a pound shop rule fox. So how far down, how far down the pound shop are we going before we get to a pound shop Aaron Lennon? I reckon he was more a pound shop David Beckham in that
2: his main virtue was crossing rather than beating the man. Yes, even though he knew how to make a yard. But anyway,
0: let's not go there. He was a scurrier though, in the way that Beckham yeah. was not yeah. so much of a scurrier. The way Aaron Lennon is a scurrier. He was that's a, true. I, yeah, I can see that.
1: And I think again, yeah. that's part of the the kind of folk memory of him now is this like busy scurrying figure rather than the more culture footballer that he probably was.
0: Yeah, the problem is that the, the the crazy gang have beaten the culture club. <laughs> I mean that that rests so heavy on all those Wimbledon players' shoulders that it's very hard to get past that. And some of them were were very fine footballers. I mean, particularly the centre halves in that team were absolutely yeah. outstanding. So um, yeah, we we look back through. A lens which is was much more focused in those days in terms of media and punditry and everything else now we have you know the, the horrors of social media but we do have a multiplicity of voices and it makes the kind of um narratives that become fixed uh, i think that they're, they're they're much less common these days than they were 20 years or more ago
1: so there you go. That's my view, or our view, on Dennis Wise. I Actually, I thought I'd get a bit of heat for that, but I'm surprised that, uh, that you, you, but you've but you all joined in and sort of agreed with me. So quite like that. But uh. what do you think out there? Do you agree with what we're saying about Dennis Wise? You can get in touch at Nesson Dorma Pod and let us know. Or maybe you want to suggest somebody who is underrated and you want to talk about a little bit more, then please let us know. Moving on, then. Uh, the feature discussion this week, because you know we like to have a feature discussion every week, is... Everton, 1984-85, arguably their greatest season. Straight, Simple question straight away, is it the greatest ever season, Gary? Yes. Thank you. Right then, so let's talk about it in a bit more detail then. So, I think some people tend to think, Gary, that this kind of came out of nowhere, really. Came out of a great blue sky, if you like. Uh, sorry. But, uh, so, what was the background to it? Was there anything that kind of was leading up to such a dominant year? The well, there was before. the run.
0: There was the run to the League Cup final, which itself was a springboard, or had acted upon the springboard of the famous Kevin Brock back pass at the Manor Ground, which, uh, as, as. The sort of uh, the history, if you like, uh, has it that uh, it saved Howard Kendall's job. I mean, I I confess that I was one of the, uh, I think, about 13,000 at at on the Gladys Street who were chanting Kendall out at the end of a match in the uh, sometime around 82 or, or 83. So, you know, I was that soldier. Um, but what Kendall did is he the side together, and we saw the start of it in the league cup run. Um, it was in the previous season it was eighty three eighty four and everton got to uh, their first final uh, of a, a cup competition since seventy seven and uh, they were beaten essentially by Graham Sooners more or less on his own, I think in a, in a I suspect a replay, and uh, he yeah. scored the winning goal and he dominated. He dominated Everton, and I think Everton learned a bit from that. They learned a bit about the importance of midfield enforcer, um, but they had shown that they could compete with Liverpool, so the inferiority complex uh, over Liverpool that Liverpool had over us um, began to be chipped away at and um, We won the charity shield uh, to start the season but we lost 4 1 on the opening day to Tottenham, and then um, there was always a midweek game straight after the first game of the season. We lost 2 0 at Villa Park to Villa, and it wasn't kind of doom and gloom, but it felt like a bit of a false dawn. But then came uh, in October, we, uh, on the 13th before of October, we, before Everton. We we get, before we get hey, into the season, go Gary, on.
1: Before we get into the season, I want to pick up on that question. You were obviously in Liverpool at that time as an Everton fan. Yes. What, without meaning to, you know, without meaning to, probably the one word answer you'd want to give, what what was it like to be an Everton f- You mentioned the facts about Liverpool then, what was it like to be an Everton fan between sort of 1978 and 1984,
0: I suppose? Well, I remember going to derbies and I, I was there to see um, Andy King score the, the famous winner in 77 with the uh, the postscript of, get off the pitch! With uh, the interview going, going on. Um, but even that sort of 1-0 win, which was the first win since, I think, 1970, the championship season, I remember looking at these men in red um, who would run out at a derby, and you would look at them and you would think of them as some kind of supermen. And part of the reason for that is there was so little football on the television then. There was match of the day, two matches uh, shown. And Liverpool were on far more than, than anybody else because they were playing yeah. European games. So these, these looked like gods amongst men. Um, and they kept producing players. So, you know, Ian Rush comes out of nowhere, um, and you know, all of a sudden is the is the 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 golden boot, I think, in in Europe. Um, Ronnie Whelan comes out of nowhere. Steve Nicol. Um, the, these players, and we would look at them as Evertonians. And I, I I don't say that the team necessarily were beaten before they started, but we looked at them and we thought, how can we? beat these supermen how can we we beat these legends these you know i went to the picton library in liverpool in 77 I walk into the entrance hall and there is the big cup itself the european cup on show in liverpool's library and i'm gazing at it as an evertonian (laughs) looking at it and and there is you know liverpool football club writ large and getting ahead of liverpool um was was everything in those days um, we weren't going to get relegated but how were we going to get ahead of of liverpool and the belief started to seep in in that your uh, that league cup final the run to the league cup final and then it exploded in yeah.
2: 84
0: 85 we didn't just challenge them we beat them
2: yeah rob so you won you won the FA cup in 84 as well didn't you
0: no uh, yeah we did uh, yeah oh yes yeah, i so... just thought um... I uh, yeah, I think it was 83 then was the run to the League Cup final. No, and then, but they were both 84.
2: 84. Yeah,
0: they were both 84. 80, yeah, they were both so 84. After... So, yeah, that was the Watford uh, final,
2: yeah. I just find it interesting. Everyone talks about Kevin Brock, and rightly so, but I, I feel like Tony Cascarino deserves a bit of credit as well because I think he beat Gillingham after a second replay. Yeah, and yeah, in the, too in too the second game at Pruitsfield, Cascarino, in, I think it was last minute of extra time or last minute of normal time, ran from inside his own half clear on goal and made a total bollocks of it. And there's a wonderful bit in his autobiography. I've got it here. If you've got the paperback, it's page 77-78, where he's going through his internal monologue as he runs through on goal. And it's just torturing him, and he ends up dribbling the shot into... Uh, Southall's hands and then he said his monologue says you clumsy fucking twat and on goes <laughs> but I just it's such a funny it's obviously an amazing book and it's such a funny bit but one thing I found interesting is that you were talking about Liverpool these players coming from nowhere and that's kind of what Everton did isn't it they, and something that couldn't happen now they built a team from the lower leagues pretty much
0: I remember my, my father saying – there are a number of quotes I could give here. I won't do too many, but my my <laughs> my dad said to, to me about halfway through the season, You because I was at university in London then, so he said, you need to watch this Everton team. He said, you will never see a team like this again in your lifetime. And he'd been watching Everton since just after the war, so he knew it was the greatest team there. And another thing he said is that, we had all these players, all these young players come through at the same time. So you've got Gary Stevens coming through at right back. You've got Trevor Stevens coming through ahead of him, 21 years old, £300,000 from Burnley. You've got the resurrection of Peter Reid, a croc at Bolton, a reject from Liverpool playing centre midfield. You've got Graham Sharp, 22 probably from Dumbarton. You've got the old man Andy Gray who came <laughs> back for 84 and gave so much belief. Then you've got Adrian Heath who was a big money buy from Stoke City but had a lot to prove um you've got squad players like kevin richardson coming through and you've got the sublime kevin sheedy whose left foot was a wand and what really um sort of finished the the uh, the picture and upgraded the side from the fa cup winners of of 84 was john bailey who was a tremendous sort of character and he had famous glasses on at wembley and everything else but once you got Pat Vanden Howe there, before he got wrapped up in the celebrity stuff, he was such a good left-back. He could drop a ball 50 yards onto, onto a shilling, and um, he came in and made a difference. So all this stuff kind of came together of these young players who all believed in each other, who all had something to prove. All of a sudden, we had the best goalkeeper in Europe in Neville Southall, who was a giant in every sense uh, between the was signed the from Winsford
1: sticks. United, wasn't he?
0: Something, something like
1: some that for £60,000. While you're talking about the I squad think- there, it's interesting that the point you made because when you look at the beginning of that season, Bracewell came in. Paul Bracewell, and we'll talk about this in a minute. You've already mentioned Vanden Heu. Here's a trivia question. There was a 19-year-old midfielder who then popped up in the 90s quite strongly in the Premier League. He was let go by Everton. He was 19 you know, in eighty-four. and he was let go. He ended up at West Ham in the 90s. Yeah, it's Ian Bishop. It is Ian Bishop. Oh. Yeah. yeah, he went to Carlisle and then kind of City and then West Ham, and he's a very. He, you see, that's the funny thing, is it? In my mind, Ian Bishop is an exclusively '90s footballer. <laughs> yeah, but he, is, yeah. but you know, but he's not obviously, Dagenham Motors and all that at West Ham, but he obviously isn't. So, so yeah. So yeah. if you think about, he, he didn't really suit.
0: I was going to say he didn't really suit the Kendall way because everybody had to run hard everybody had mm. to cover the miles there was no up to the stats then but I'm pretty sure that with the possible exception of Kevin Sheedy absolutely every one of those Ever- Everton players was running at least as many miles as any other player in the first division
1: so when the season started then you mentioned that Vanden Heuwe came in sort of he came in September so the season had already started then he came in But so what the best 11 that they had when everybody was in there was Southall and goal, obviously. Gary Stevens, Kevin Radcliffe, Derek Mountfield.
2: Didn't you get about 20 goals, Mountfield? I don't know. But anyway, yeah, sorry. Mountfield, so Mountfield got 15, back, 15, I think. 15 goals, yeah.
1: yeah. So, yeah. Mountfield, left back was Ed, eventually Pat Den Midfield was Bracewell, Reed, Kevin Sheedy, Trevor Stephen. And then up front at the beginning of the season, it was Adrian Heath and Graeme Sharp. Is that right? Because but then yeah. and, and then Heath got did he get injured?
0: He got injured. I think Paul Wilkinson came in and played some matches,
1: and then finally Andy Gray and Graham Sharp took over today as the kind of Gray.
2: Now Gray went the year after when they signed Lineker. He certainly it, wasn't first choice. I thought you only. The only reason I remember is because the famous game against Bayern, he scores and yes, I he think, does. I think one of the goals came while Bayern were in disarray because Gray's marker was off the field with a broken nose.
1: You see, <laughs> <laughs> that famous game against Bayern, by the way, people aren't aware, was the Cup Winners' Cup semi-final at, um, at Goodison. What, what made me, just did talk about that for a second, what made me laugh about that is when you watch the highlights now, and it, it's one of the greatest games ever at Goodison, etc, etc. What made me laugh about that is, is that how the famous German efficiency and control was completely undone by, like Gary, gone. by Gary Stevens' long throws. <laughs> they had no idea what to do with Gary Stevens wanging the ball into into the into the box. They went completely to pieces.
0: Yeah, I, I missed uh, I missed both those matches to my shame. Um, you know, Wednesday nights were quite difficult if you were preparing for exams and stuff on the Thursday. Um, but the legend has it that the Gladys Street were sucking those goals in there, and you know, Goodison was a an absolute cauldron. And what was driving that was not just the fact that it was Bayern Munich, but it was obviously our chance to do the kind of thing that Liverpool have been doing for a generation, or certainly for for 10 years or so. And um, it was not a chance to to, to be missed. And, uh, and, yeah, I mean, you ask any Evertonian their greatest match, and if they don't say, like me, the Wimbledon match in 1994, they will say the Bayern Munich match in 1985.
1: <laughs> for very different reasons, yeah
0: very different reasons
1: yeah one thing that the standard they set was
2: absolutely ferocious because we get used now to high winning points totals man city and so on and gary would have more stats but i know that one from boxing day onwards until they won the league they played 18 games league games won 16 and drew two that just didn't happen in the 80s it was extraordinary standard
0: Remember what we were doing that or Everton were doing that at a time when they were in the middle of an FA Cup run and a European Cup winners' cup yeah, run. Yeah, that's a good point. So there was there was no there was no let up. But and it was it the seemed, same squad, it wasn't all, it, Gary?
1: That's the thing. It was there wasn't it was a the rotation same. It was, of twenty seven players. This was the same You didn't call thirteen, you didn't rotate. yeah
0: yeah there was no there was no rotation I mean Kevin Richardson came in and out of the squad as a squad player, but essentially it was the same four four two but there was such belief and I remember the belief that was running through the fans as well. Um, you put what was then probably radio two on for the uh, for the commentary, and you just expected Everton to win well, of course, we were going to win and I remember FA Cup games getting in the way because because the title we'd won the FA Cup as Rob you rightly point out in '84, but he didn't want FA Cup games because he wanted to get that first division to to get that title won. And I was there at, uh, in the Gladys Street um, against QPR uh, when we secured a two-nil win, and uh, the title was won with five matches to spare, um, even though Everton lost three of the last four matches of that season there was still a 13-point gap back to um, the second place. Um, the, the dominance of the side, and that dominance was psychological as much as it was uh, physical and as much as it was in terms of points, was, was quite extraordinary. And you just, you just walked tall as an Evertonian. It was, it was a glorious time. I mean, I was, I was 22, and to be 22 living in London and an Evertonian then with Frankie Goes to Hollywood about to you know, sort of reinvent <laughs> pop music, it was just too good to be true.
2: How much sweeter did the previous ten years of Liverpool dominance make it.
0: Uh, it made it. It made it very sweet. You know, I don't want to be overly parochial.
2: It's not. No, a, but I think if you're Celtic like you Rangers say, thing, if you live with but, it every day, and you know it's being rammed home in your own library, it must kind of it must impact upon <laughs> the way you react. I can't yeah, even and, go to and, the bloody library
1: without
2: <laughs> about it. This, I think the sweetest thing
0: is that it wasn't Liverpool falling off the edge of a cliff. You know, they they won the title themselves in 86 with the, the mm. famous double Kenny Dalgleish in the uh, dressing room at Chelsea with his socks rolled down. Liverpool weren't any worse. We were just better. Everton mm. beat Liverpool yeah. because we were the better team. So it made it, say, all the uh, all, uh, sweeter. I mean, I was there for... Goodison when uh, Everton beat Manchester United 5-0. Manchester United were a good side then. They weren't the dominant force they became. But to beat Manchester United 5-0, Kevin Sheedy scored a header from outside the box. It was just bonkers. Were you
2: at Anfield for the Graham Sharp goal?
0: No, no, I wasn't, unfortunately. But that one goal of the season. But again, that was...
1: For those of you who don't know what we're talking about the Graham Sharp goal, which I'm sure you must have listened to this podcast, but just to remind you, it was in the Derby game. And... If you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube. Just put Graham Sharp goal; it'll be the first thing that comes out. But it's, it always reminds me. It's like most of you will probably remember. I know you two do. I mean, people listening will remember the Gaza goal against Scotland. It reminds yeah. me of that, but better. I think the initial yeah, the, the initial invention isn't quite as good because the way Gaza lifts the ball over his head. But the way yeah. the, the, the ball that Sharp had to control before he volleyed mm-hmm. that ball, because the ball was from Stevens right back in his own half. Mm. And Sharp just took it on his left foot, and it came across his body, and then bang from outside the box, wasn't it?
2: Oh, it's a ridiculous goal! It's absolutely, it's, it's one it... of the most iconic goals in English football in the decade, I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of goal that would make uh, the top ten by Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I mean, I'm trying <laughs> to think of a player who would score. No, it's true. It is a, a, it is like a
1: remarkable, remarkable goal.
0: And again, it was just another kind of lifting of, of belief. And and uh, Rob, I must answer you. Uh, actually, the reason I I wasn't there for that match is I've never been to Anfield, and <laughs> I don't think I'll ever go.
1: <laughs> is that a deliberate decision, or did you, or have you just never had a chance to get a ticket? Uh,
0: I grew up in fear of, of coming going <laughs> there, and I don't believe in jinxes, but I feel that that if I do ever sort of put a foot over that portal, that, that all the ghosts will crowd in, and um, you know the 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 come and will will come to me and to Everton Football Club. So I haven't taken a vow never to go there. But if you offered me a free ticket for um, the the FA Cup uh, game, I'd say no, thank you, not Anfield.
2: And, and you um you said they lost the home to Spurs first of the season; they Thrash. There was a really big game at Spurs, wasn't there? When Southall had an absolutely great game because I think well, Spurs, I was there for that one. Yeah. Spurs ended up as your biggest rivals, didn't they? And I know that is the game when Alan Harper made you love him
0: yeah. so much
1: more.
0: In the, in, the, in the ninth minute of the match, Mark Falco, who could put himself about as a centre-forward to say the least, he crunched Kevin Ratcliffe, I think, and Ratcliffe had to go off and for Ratcliffe to, to leave the field, I mean, most 80s footballers, this was the case, but especially Kevin Ratcliffe, he must have had a leg hanging off, you know, to, to, to leave the field in the ninth minute. Alan Harper tucked in from right back to centre back. He was about 5'10", something like that. And he, he just played a, a blinder. And for a man to stand up in those circumstances, but so too did Neville Southall. And i tell you what made that game the sweeter mm. is that all the press, all the press were... In the northwest, they were about Manchester United and Liverpool. In the south, they were about the London clubs. We were the kind of ugly sisters. Nobody gave us any credit for for what we were doing. So to to go to the darlings of the press, go to their patch, and
2: to win with that kind of heart, what a what a night that was. I think my favourite moment as a, as an outsider is the um, <clears throat> I know it's an obvious one. It's Andy Gray's goal against Sunderland when Reed absolutely skins someone down the right low cross and grade to in. I think there were two diving headers in that game, actually, from him. But just the sheer dynamism and directness, as you say, they were, just, they were such an unstoppable power team. And also, and sometimes I can sound patronising and suggest there wasn't this school involved. Clearly there was. But I think the, the kind of dynamism and power is the thing that I remember and you talk, from what I've seen.
1: When you talk about the, we had this underrated feature at the beginning, it's interesting because people like Mountfield are not really talked about now, are they? And even Radcliffe. You know you don't when they talk about great centre halves of the past yeah, Ratcliffe was a fine player, you know they're well, never really spoken about, are they?
2: One,
0: one of the reasons why is that, is that they played a, a type of football that you can't, can't really play now because Kevin Ratcliffe was all about pressing up, playing the offside and having the recovery pace that if anybody sprung the offside trap, which was rare indeed, uh, Ratcliffe could give anybody five yards and catch them up over 40 yards. So it was like having two players. It was like, it was like having a man who could stand off. And defend deep but also a man who could press up and play the offside and he was able to do that and very few others were. Mountfield was an extraordinary character. Um, he could really only play for Everton. He, he played for other sides after. I think he played for Wolves and for uh, Aston Villa. But for Everton, he was he was a giant in that not only was a, a solid centre-half, um, not, a, not a great centre-half in terms of his defending and his ball playing, but he was so solid and his positional sense was excellent. But nobody was better at getting on the end of crosses than Mountfield and scoring vital goals. Um, he got... Uh, he, He was up against Mick Harford in the uh, FA Cup semi-final. Again, I I don't know if it was 85, 86 or 87. It was at, uh, I think it was at uh, Villa Park. Uh, No, it may have been Hillsborough. Anyway, it was just in front of us. And um, uh, he was wearing the uh, bandage that centre-halves often wore if they uh, were in the uh, second half, having played the first half (laughs) against Mick Harford. And um, he scored a a header from across in, I don't know, the 83rd minute to, to... draw to get us back into the match Ricky Hill had scored for Luton and then Kevin Sheedy sort of dribbled one in um, in extra time to to win it and only Mountfield was getting on the end of that cross and he scored so many vital goals he was so underrated never got a mention for England but maybe he didn't have the the pace and maybe didn't quite have the ball playing passing game that, that would mark out a top international player but he's an Everton hero forever
1: when you think about it he scored 19 goals in his career at Everton 15 of which were in that season
0: yeah yeah, from <laughs> so centre-half. He, so he spent bizarre. the rest of his
1: six-year career just not really scoring at all. So He bizarre. just got
0: on the end of everything. And remember, the, the crosses from Trevor Stephen and Kevin Sheedy were were good and I'll just go back briefly if I may Rob to the the, uh, the goal that Andy Gray scored against Sunderland because I'm in my mind's eye Peter Reid is wheeling away celebrating the, the goal <laughs> before his cross arrives on Andy Gray's head so <laughs> certainly is he going to do that but almost better than that goal was the 50 yard pass on the volley from I think Paul Bracewell oh, in the yes, centre circle Steven, to Trevor yeah. Stephen who controls it uh, yeah. on the wing cuts it inside and then just smashes one Into the net, I think, off the crossbar, and again, it just felt like an unstoppable force. Like whoever eleven players were in front of us, we were going to be able to do it.
1: it And the feeling
0: in the ground, extraordinary.
1: So was it a combination you mentioned before about this this power play that was at an eighty-five and eighty-four and pace? But obviously, that has to be matched with some. You know, when I look, when you look at that team, as we mentioned before, some bloody good footballers in there as well. I mean, was it was it that kind of joy to watch thing,
0: Rob? well yeah Rob what do you think as an outsider because I of course have views
2: (laughs) Uh,
1: it was slightly from my time so I've been kind of living a house I'm
2: just going to say I'll let Gary say because he knows a lot more than me but talking of underrated players Trevor Stephen was another throughout his career I thought he was a brilliant player should have could have played more for England was a key part actually in Italian 90 coming off the bench um I just thought he was a superb player anyway sorry go on
0: yeah, well, he went to the backwater of Rangers, who at that time had sort of more money than any other um, Was that the main reason he British went, was it just club?
1: money? Because they always found when I mean, probably... people went to Rangers, it was like, why have you gone? I mean, no, Didn't you go no go disrespect Marseille? Scottish football, but it was, was it Marseille first, was it? Ah, that Did it Marseille. Five and a half
0: million, I think, he went to Rangers for. I may be, I may be wrong, but um, yeah, it was very strange how quickly that side broke up. But, you know, football was a strange game in, the, in those days. Um, who knew what went on in back rooms and who knew what was going on? I'm not saying there was any corruption. Uh, I've got no knowledge, of rumours. Well, there definitely no wasn't Marseille.
1: We know them. that now. We? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, he, went,
2: he went Everton Rangers Marseille. Just yeah, one one big factor, of course, was that British teams weren't in European football. But anyway, I'm sure that wasn't the only reason.
0: Yeah, um, there was there English was teams rather. Yeah, there was a there was a bit of that, but but Rangers could almost buy anybody they wanted at that time, and they chose to buy uh, Trevor Stephen, who left Everton. He was probably about twenty five or something when he when he left Everton. You know, you think he would be in his absolute prime. Um, but uh, there was there was such energy in the in the side, and there were there were ball players. You know, I, I will insist that uh, Kevin Sheedy was a better player than Glenn Hoddle. You look at Sheedy's output. Um he was, he was a proper wide midfield player. He wasn't a, uh, a Ronaldo-type forward who played out wide. He was a wide midfield player. And he scored something like a goal every three and a half games, and he scored vital goals. Yeah, he did the extraordinary thing against Ipswich where he took a free kick and he, he hit the first one into the top left-hand corner, was told to take it again, so ran up and put it in the top right-hand corner the way <laughs> you do. Uh, So she was an extraordinary ball player. Sharp was so aggressive as a centre forward, ultra aggressive. You think Andy Gray was aggressive? Sharp was even more aggressive. He would, I mean, if you think Andy Carroll is uh, throwing himself about a bit at the moment, well, you know, Graham Sharp did that all day, every day. When
1: Graham Sharp came to Oldham, of course, after Everton in our, you know, well, some fated and ill fated premiership period. But um, I'll never forget it was a game he was playing for Oldham. And the the linesman gave him offside. or gave a, a penalty. or gave a, an infringement against him in the channel. And I don't know what it basically. And you see on the video, Graham Sharp turns round and spits some words at the linesman, and just turns around. And the linesman stands behind him, waving his flag, and calls a referee <laughs> over. It basically gets him sent off. It was absolutely. It, it almost, in a way, it, it kind of summed up what you were just saying. That is exactly, and by then he lost a bit of his pace and he wasn't quite the player he was. But the point is, he was still that. He was still basically just fuming all the time. He <laughs> was he
0: was he was a he was an aggressive Scottish player that, that there seemed to be loads of they just seemed to be able to whistle them whistle them up but he was the the kind of epitome of that sort of Scottish aggression. Um you know he was a 6 foot 1 inch Billy Bremner in lots of ways and you know we we loved him for it but let's not forget that you know, a lot of eulogising quite rightly of David De Gea's performance uh, for Manchester United against Arsenal. Neville Southall was putting performances like that in week in, week out. He was just an extraordinary shot stopper. Um, his reactions were fantastic, his concentration was brilliant, he was the football writers player of the year and he had every right to be the football writer's player of the year. Peter Reid won the player's player of the year. Uh, But Southall, um, for a period of three or four years, but that was his best period, was a goalkeeper non pare You know, we'll never see his likes at at Everton again. The only goalkeeper I've seen who had such dominance about him and had such character and his his ability to to, um, influence the game was, was Schmeichel, and he's the only one of goalkeepers I've seen playing in the top flight of English football that I would have in the same league as, uh, as uh, Southall.
1: I thought you were going to say Mike. Rob Green
2: then. Go on. <laughs> Mike, Mike Gibbons, who's been on here a few times, tells quite a good story about watching it. This is when Southall was well past it in like mid to late 90s and watching him have one of his last great games away to Holland for Wales. Where, and like, Southall was undisputed man in the match and Wales lost 7-1. Yeah. yeah. And there's probably yeah. about
1: 12 people watching how different <laughs> yeah. it is now. But it's funny, I, there's probably no optostats stats on this or anything like that because it's never been. But I, I'm i sure if you went back and watched it all, if you possibly could, he must be the keeper who has got the most multiple saves in that kind of double save thing. I'm pretty oh, yeah, sure there can't be many one. more keepers who did, like you said, won the reaction and then just the sheer. You talk about aggression with shot. There was something about himself. He really was a quiet sort of loner there was something about the he would not be beaten he'd he, he to switch sportsmen he'd make a really good rugby league player because he would not give up he would he would go mm. and tackle every time and that's the best way I can kind of describe it but as a footballer mm. and goalkeepers aren't given much credit for this sometimes but I do think he just would he refused to be beaten through sheer sort of energy and force of will as much of his, as his talent really
0: there was a lot of that, and you know, I don't think Metz has ever been involved in a goalmouth scramble in the 400 or 500 games he must have played now. But there was a goalmouth scramble, it seemed, in every match in the yeah. 80s. <laughs> and you know, Neville came up with the ball over and over again. I tell, I tell a quick story. I, I spoke to my uh, younger brother uh, Ian um, about Southall a few weeks ago when I was uh, up for the Everton Arsenal game, and um, he said that he saw Southall's first or second game for Everton. This would be in about 81 or 82, and um, He was, I think, 15 at the time. And the way kids did in those days, he just decided to tell my parents that he was going to the Birmingham game. And I think he took an afternoon off school or whatever you did in uh, those days and got on the coach and went down to... um, St. Andrews, and uh, he said he watched the game from under netting because I've forgotten this. But um, there was a time when not only were there fences, but there was netting, and the netting was to stop snooker balls being thrown from the uh, stands <laughs> into the, onto the terraces. So he was under netting, but um, he said that uh, Alan Ainscoe, uh, there's a name from the past, he scored and. Um, and Southall was absolutely brilliant, and sort of arrived back about two o'clock in the morning or whatever from Birmingham off the uh, the coach, and uh, and then however they got home from the uh, the rocket in uh, off the M62 there, and uh, he said, you know, we've got a player here yeah. uh, in this Neville Southall. He's going to be he's going to be our goalkeeper, and Jim Arnold, who was perfectly acceptable in those days as a Division One goalkeeper, um, he was displaced by uh, the bin man in the uh, green jumper, and uh, boy oh boy. Was that an upgrade?
1: The last th- I remember the last time I remember seeing Southall was when he was at you know, was his last game at Bradford. Oh yeah. When he was properly about eighteen stone with three jumpers yeah. on.
2: Yeah, it was a game against Leeds live on this guy. He, I think he came in at short notice, yeah. He, yeah.
1: And still he's... and he still did one of he still did a Southall save in that game. He still did, despite his size, if I remember he still pulled off one of those kind of arcing feet. Um, You know, point away, dancer's point, save like he used to do. Okay, so there you go. That's Everton. So you won with 13 points in the league. You, of course, went on to win the Cup Winners' Cup as well. They did. You did. They did.
0: Yeah. My uh, father and both my brothers were in
1: Rotterdam, but
0: I didn't go. I was definitely um, having uh, university exams at that time, which was a bit of a shame.
1: You a, would you say you had an easy run in that? Well, the, the most difficult game you had in that, it seems to be, was against University College Dublin in the first round. <laughs> that was, you really yeah, struggled that, to get past the, the titans of uh, the University College Dublin. <laughs> it,
0: was a, it was a bit of a squeak. It was a bit like that combined <laughs> university side at Averton and Hussein and got to the <laughs> quarterfinal of the Benson and Hedges Cup a few years later. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was by far, it was supposed, well, there were two ways of looking at the European Cup Winners' Cup. On the one hand, it was said to be by far the weakest tournament, because obviously, um, especially around Europe, um, the the cups were relatively low-key. But the other way of looking at the tournament was, it was often a springboard, as it was for Everton, for Hmm. young sides who'd had good cup runs, that in their second season, as they came into their own, uh, they were in the European Cup Winners' Cup, and there are examples of that. Uh, not just of course, uh, Everton, so it, it could vary a lot as a as a European uh, trophy, um, but you know it meant that Everton at least had one European trophy to go with liverpool 's now five big cups and whatever else they won They won the youth cup didn 't they and stuff like this, so you know we, we were on the board, and we will forever be on the board and. If you see that uh, the final against Rapid Vienna, Hans Krankel, of course, one of, one of my heroes of the greatest goal I've ever seen was scored by Hans Krankel. Um, he was leading <laughs> Rapid Vienna and um, Everton won 3-1 with an absolutely sublime goal by Kevin Sheedy off the crossbar to uh, seal the win.
1: And then there was a the final heartbreak in the FA Cup to finish the season off. It didn't really feel like heartbreak. Um, people didn't. U- did of... people use words like that in 1985? Anyway, that's <laughs> a very modern uh, sporting word to use, isn't it? But yeah,
0: there's a yeah. I mean, there weren't the the kind of focus on the fans all crying and and stuff like this. <laughs> I mean, we were we were almost sated. Uh, as I said, um, the FA Cup was at least for me, and I think for others, a bit of a sideshow compared to winning the title first time since 1970, and uh, you know, a chance to get above Liverpool and. You know, there was a bit of a kind of fairy tale in that Whiteside scored at 17 with an extraordinary goal and, you know, Kevin Moran was sent off in unfortunate circumstances there. And, I mean, the, the side the side had run out of legs a little bit. Um, there, there had been as we understand um, some celebrations going on and stuff like that and i don't resent the fact that we didn't do the the double and you know doubles have been done plenty of times since then it was relatively rare i think in in those days you know tottenham had, had their one in 1961 and arsenal in 71 uh, i don't know if there've been any in between there must have been in between times but no, liverpool did forget. it in 86, in 86. Uh, i i don't i recall you know everton fans being disappointed but you know you, you wouldn't you can't complain at what the, the, the team had given us, and I certainly don't resent uh, that, uh, that FA Cup to Manchester United. But we were in extra time. You know, We got that close to winning, to winning a treble.
1: Difficult. I suppose you must have maybe been asked this question many times, and I suppose any Everton fans out there have been, you've certainly thought about it many times. Europe was taken away for whatever yeah. reason. I don't want to get into that. How do you think they'd have gone on? Because if you look at the European Cup the year after, they'd have won it. that, is that your view? Obviously, that's your view, then, Rob, is it?
2: Definitely. <clears throat> the The European Cup wasn't that strong. Barcelona were a decent side, not a great one. Stoberiakres won it. I, 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 I put it another. If Everton to stay in the level, they had an eighty four eighty five, and of course they added Lineker, I think they'd have won it. Or, well, you can never say for certain, but I think they'd have been yeah. strongish well, favourites.
1: Because if you look at the semi finals that year, it was Barcelona versus Gothenburg and Stoberiakres versus Anderlecht.
2: Yeah, I mean no, Barcelona have, put. Barcelona, well, a Juventus, who were obviously a good side, but yeah, there was there was not that much to worry about for Everton. I mean, Gary would probably
0: well, agreed. I mean, I'd like to think that it can only be conjecture, but there's another element which I think is important in in '86 when when England went to Mexico, they played badly. I think in the first match, Robbie you'll know this better than I do. But then they introduced four Everton players. I think against Poland, there was Lineker, Stevens, Stephen and Peter Reed. And we won the match 3 0 that we needed to win. And England looked a good side in 86. And we only lost to the eventual winners, Argentina. And we lost to, of course, yeah. uh, a handball and one of the greatest goals of all time. So if you, you think about England 6. <laughs> yeah. If you. If you look at that 86 England side, the backbone of that, or certainly a major component of it, was the Everton 86 side. If they were doing that well at world level in Mexico, how do you think we were going to be able to do at European level against sides that, as you say, hardly make the Hall of Fame of of great European uh, Cup-winning sides? You have to think we'd have gone deep, but it can only be conjecture, and it was not going to happen. Um, there are many Everton fans who who resent that. You know, my father resented that, supported Everton all his life, never got to see us play in the European Cup. Well, we played against Panathinaikos, lost in 1970, saw that, he was there for that. Um, but we, we were denied that opportunity. But I don't think, and I may be wrong in this, and I'm sure I'll get some reaction if I am, I don't think any of us resented the fact that something had to be done and banning English teams uh, seemed a, a reasonable move. And looking back on it, how could, how could any other decision be made?
1: So, there you go. Everton's 84-85 season, a little bit of a reminiscence there. Any chance next year, Gary, do you think?
0: What, next year?
1: <laughs> well, under Allardyce, I, anything's possible, in it, surely?
0: I think if we sign uh, Kevin Bruyne, if we sign David Silva, uh, if we sign uh, all <laughs> Liverpool's forwards, um, yeah, we'll have a, we'd, we'd have a chance, but we would need, uh, we would need uh, 16... More players, speaking shall we of, say?
1: Last point of this, speaking of Kevin's, and he talked about Ian Bishop left, of course. Kevin Richardson then turned up at Villa in the 90s and got his England cap and also, eight, yeah, nine years Arsenal. later. Yeah, won yeah, yeah. the league at
0: Arsenal as well. Yeah, he oh, was a course, fine yeah. player, uh, Richardson. He, he wouldn't so much be good these days because he, he lacked a bit of pace, but what he lacked in pace he had plenty of nous and you know to think of an in and out squad player at Everton going on to to win the title at Arsenal and win England caps it just goes to show how good that first 11 were for Everton
2: I interviewed Ron Atkinson last year actually for the blizzard and I asked him what made Richardson so good and he said I thought it was quite interesting what he said he just said he didn't make any mistakes which I thought was quite interesting we think always of the kind of excellence but he said
1: just just did everything right, basically. Does that, it's that those. It's those um, eight out of ten players, isn't it? Mm. They're never ten out of ten, but they're never six. The journeyman. they just. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, um...
0: well, there's, there's a brilliant interview with Kevin De Bruyne. Um, you may have seen it uh, on Sky Sports. I think Jamie Redknapp does a fantastic job interviewing him. Hard though really? it is to believe. And <laughs> yeah. one of the points that Kevin De Bruyne makes is that Pep Guardiola says you can do what you like when you have the ball in the opposition third, but as soon as you lose the ball, you go back into the shape. And what Richardson was throughout his career, he was brilliant at getting into a defensive shape. So he made lots of, of kind of unobtrusive interceptions, uh, tackles where he was just picking up the ball, uh, knocking little sideways passes. But it was his discipline. At a time when English football... Discipline was, you know, you don't cross the halfway line. Richardson was much brighter than that. He was able to assess where the play was and then get in the right shape for the play at that time. And he could do that at twenty-one at Everton, and that's why he was such a good squad player because he came in and did a job no matter what the circumstances.
1: So you interviewed Ron Atkinson then, Rob. So is <laughs> he? Is he still? Is he still beautifully bronze? I'm not seeing him.
2: <laughs> it was. He was looking. A little bit old. I can't remember. I can't remember the state of his tan. He was still. He's, he's late seventies now. He's still really sharp mentally. It was for um, for the blizzards. So just kind of. It was when he did his autobiography, right. which is a very good read. But yeah, I, I, I think despite his obvious mistakes, uh, I think Atkinson's <laughs> kind of one of the lost treasures of English football. But that's another. Maybe that's, that's another. Another, riff.
1: another episode altogether.
0: Well, we we have the big Ron de Nojor, of course, in Big Sam now at Everton. So <laughs> yeah. let's see how that works out.
1: Let's finish then on our journeyman of the week. Now, obviously, uh, journeymen are normally people who you tend to think of as kind of bog standard who wander around, you know, crap clubs to middling clubs most of their career. But Rob, you've got a nomination for somebody who might maybe dispel that.
2: Yeah, well, I looked this up. Uh, I I actually looked up journeyman in the dictionary just because I was quite interested. And it said, um, it doesn't mention about number of clubs at all. It just says about a reliable... Unspectacular player, something like that. so. Someone like Ray Parlour or Dennis Irwin, for example, could be perceived. So it kind of ties in with underrated. But anyway, um, but I think a lot of us think of it also in terms of number of clubs. So I thought I'd look at a kind of high-class player who had a million clubs, and I came up with Romario, whose list is quite interesting. So it's Vasco da Gama, PSV, Barcelona, Flamengo, Valencia, Flamengo on loan, Flamengo, Vasco again, Fluminense, Al Sadd on loan, Vasco again. Miami FC, Adelaide United, Vasco again, and finally his, I think it was a his, his, nice no, his boy club, I think it was a club his dad supported in America, in uh, Rio. But I just thought it was quite interesting. And also, I've been doing, I'm doing a book on Brazilian football at the moment, and one thing I noticed is that so many of the great players just go through more clubs than Neil Redfern. It's fascinating. It's like Edmundo, who was not quite in Romario's class, but a bloody good attacker in the 90s.
1: The anim- he was, that, changed- was he the animal? I think Monday. so, yeah. He the was the one who got a monk, yeah. a monkey drunk
2: and went home from a Serie A title race to go to Carnival, <laughs> went AWOL. <laughs> yeah. so, seriously, Fiorentino had a chance of winning the first title in decades and he just buggered off to Carnival, but that's another story. <laughs> he changed club, I think, 17 or 18 times. There's one guy, there's one guy Jai Pereira, who's, really, yeah. who's a really famous manager. And He managed Atletico Madrid and all the big rear clubs, and he had someone like 30 jobs. It's really interesting. I don't know whether it's Wanderlust or... I don't know really but I just found it quite interesting so I mean Romario the peak years of his career were the emergence of Vasco of a kind of penalty area genius five years at PSV when he kind of introduced himself to the whole world and played in the Bobby Robson and so on then a really short spell but a famous spell at Barcelona when he was probably the best player in the world and obviously won the World Cup then he went back to Flamengo and then the whole kind of wanderlust starts really a little spell at Valencia but I just find it interesting that a player that good had so many clubs, because we're talking about one, certainly the greatest one-on-one finisher I've ever seen, and probably one of the greatest footballers of all time. So it's quite unusual.
1: Most people uh, uh, most people listening, I would imagine, and certainly as the casual observer, would, would remember him, like you said, from the '94 World Cup. He actually yeah, made you his remember, debut in 1990, didn't he? Is that, is
2: that he right? played
1: before then, but he was part of the quality. I think he had a broken leg, and that's why...
2: He didn't play much. He played against Scotland. Jim Layton made a really good save for him, actually, which is kind of forgotten because of his subsequent error. But he was in the squad. They had an amazing array of attacking talent in that squad. But the problem is half of them weren't fully fit, so they had Carreco, who was great. But Romario wasn't fully fit. I don't think Babetto was fully fit. This is
1: 1990.
2: Yeah, Romario really came... He, he kind of had a short spell. Into, I mean, he was, he was a genius throughout, but he had a short spell when he was really at his peak, which is he was recalled for... a must-win or a crucial last World Cup qualifier against Uruguay at the Maracanã in 93. And they won two and he scored twice. One of them was a typical humiliate the goalkeeper during a one-on-one goal. Then after that, he was the kind of best player in the world for a while. Obviously, they won the World Cup. Wouldn't have won it without him. Um, Had that spell at Barcelona, the hat-trick against um, Real Madrid, which includes one of my favourite goals. It's worth looking up. It's like a sensible soccer goal. So he fronts the bloke up on the edge of the area. And you know in sensible soccer where... Or was it off two? I forget. But one of them would stick to the player's foot. They wouldn't push it forward. It would stick to their foot. And so he drags it like that. He drags it around <laughs> about 200, maybe about 180 degrees. I don't know. But it's extraordinary the way it sticks to his foot. Takes the trainer out of the game and then just toe pokes it past the keeper. It's a,
1: amazing. One of my biggest memories of him is that kind of shape, shape, go. Thing he had that kind of did, did that that way of in the box. He yeah. said he just had his, his change of pace, was, yeah, his change yeah.
2: of pace was astonishing. There's a lovely story from Gary Neville. He played against him and Ronaldo in the um Le Tour, in the in in and Wire '97, and he said he was playing centre back with Southgate, I think, and someone else. And the play was going on. England were attacking. And Ronaldo and Romario were just on a halfway there pissing themselves. Had we joke about something? And then the minute like that, Brazil won the ball. It was like bang into action, and they just like exploded.
1: Was I it just, Romario I... that David May famously got diddled by, and he just booted him one? I don't think so. May got diddled by a lot of people that season. <laughs> it was actually he was he was maybe May a, falls on his to... backside and then basically just boots him as he's running off. And I, I can't remember if it was Romario Possibly. or somebody else, but he
2: was kryptonite for two just two United defenders called Gary. So Gary Pallister, who was a fantastic player in that first great Ferguson United team, he just couldn't cope with him. He humiliated him when they beat him four 0 and then Gary Neville basically gave him two assists. At the American R in the uh, World Club Championship. Two terrible back passes. I think he just spooked defenders as well mm-hmm. because you knew, look, you give him a second, and that's it. Gary, so go on.
0: Yeah, no, uh, um, I was show- showing my boy Jesper, um, this is two or three years ago, YouTube clips of the inverted commas, other Ronaldo, because obviously he knows Cristiano Ronaldo, but he didn't know the raging bull of uh, Barcelona in PSV. So I was showing him him, and then, you know, the way you do with YouTube, I said, you know, he wasn't even the best Brazilian whose first two letters of his name were (laughs) R.O. at that time. And then I showed him Romario. And what struck me, um, you're right, it's the one-on-one goals, but it's the the other thing about Romario is he just seemed to pass the ball into the net. Yeah, he was so nonchalant. He was like a you know a cricketer who hits a four with just enough pace to, to tempt the fielder to run all the way to the boundary because it tires them out. He would hit the ball just hard enough and just far enough to the left or right of the keeper for the ball to just dribble over the line and I go in. I think it was
2: really important to him to humiliate defenders yeah. and goalkeepers. There, there, was, there was one famous goal when he's got a hat-trick for PSV in Europe, thinking to get Stoibb caressed, and he goes through, and but before he scores, he just sits everyone down. He sits the keeper down, at least one defender, and just sweeps in. And it's an interesting thing. He came from a favela, and I was talking to someone about this in Brazil, and they said that it's the whole kind of, you can take the boy out of the favela thing, but yeah. you can't. And apparently when he lived in this really expensive condo, I think it's in Baja, which is kind of the Miami of Rio, he would have these incredibly loud parties, and like basically it was 3 a.m. You It's know, designed to say, like, I'm here now. What the fuck are you going to do about it? And I think it was the same kind of thing on the pitch, though. It was a real kind of... Yeah aggressive there's a maradona called it vaccinating which literally obviously means to well penetrate so but it's that kind of thing you know um and i think that really motivated him but it's quite interesting to be able to get that combine that with that kind of calmness as well as you said and almost nonchalance like his heart rate just didn't seem to change in the box at all it's, it's, almost, it's almost a
1: kind of sociopathy in some ways, isn't it? That basically yeah, I can hey. I want to do a lot of damage, but I won't, but I can still remain calm it's, while I'm doing it. It's so.
2: worth looking at his one-on-one finishing on YouTube. I, I don't think I've ever seen better. In fact, I know I haven't seen better. There's there's one goal when he lobs, he takes a long ball forward, a bit like the Graham Sharp goal, actually, at Liverpool, but he flicks it up and then he just lobs it, really teasing me over the keepers. Like what you said. So the keeper's running back, running back leaps and it goes in. And it's almost like it's almost like he could have hit it faster and scored much more easily, but he just wanted to. And the, some of the ways he fools goalkeepers, and even, um, so for example, when they drew 2-2 at Old Trafford in 94, there was a lot of talk before the game of Schmeichel v. Romario, world's best player, world's best goalkeeper. And Schmeichel, of course, had patented the whole star jump, spreading himself and everything. And Romario scored by and Schmeichel, Schmeichel spreading. Now, it could be coincidence, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was like a, a classic example of kind of, using Schmeichel's strength against him and just making the point.
1: And it was also that oh, calmness oh, oh, oh. thing, was it? I think a lot of people, when they saw Schmeichel legging it out to him in that big yeah. stretch, you just went, oh, shit, sort of thing, and booted the ball. Whereas yeah. that was never going to be Romario, was it? He was it's just, really like, well, sad. just I know how to get around this. I'll just roll it under. On One bit. more it's, quick easy. Point.
2: it's really sad that he and Ronaldo didn't play much. They played a bit together from about 96 to 98, the, the Roro partnerships it was. But then <laughs> Romario got injured and was left out of the 98 World Cup squad, which is such a shame because... Ronaldo and Babetta were very good, but the thought of Ronaldo, and even a slightly past it, Romario, it wasn't that far past it. He played till he was 40. Um, Yeah, sorry, go on, Gary. Yeah, um,.
0: I missed, I think, last week's broadcast or maybe the the week before podcast because I was at the ballet and I'm going to (laughs) ballet again uh, tomorrow. And one of the reasons I enjoy the ballet so much is that these dancers have extraordinary balance. It's it's like watching the greatest sportsmen or women in any sport because the balance is just fantastic. And, I mean, maybe we should do something about players who had preternatural balance but romario would still would be in my top three or four players i mean maradona is head and shoulders perhaps above anybody for balance but romario's balance and that of course is how he's able to sit down uh defenders and yeah. goalkeepers because you'd you, You don't know which way he's going to go because he's so perfectly balanced. He can go either way. And when he goes either way, he goes with a change of pace. There's no adjustment. It's just entirely natural. And, of course, it leads to cliches like samba football and all this kind of stuff. But if there's one thing that characterizes the very best uh, exponents of sport, any sport, above the the more um, the, the more prosaic, shall we say, who are still good. It's that balance, and Romario will be in my top five that I've seen as a footballer.
1: Talk about brilliant exponents of football. Is Barcelona the attacking triangle at Barcelona? For those of you who don't remember, it was him, Stoichkov, and then so, sort of wandering around behind Michael Laudrup. Yeah, they couldn't always play the three, because they had
2: Ronald Koeman as well, and I think they could only ever play three, but you're right. Oh, it was yeah, good, because of the old
1: fighting. There's, well, a, yeah, that there's was... a
2: goal that might be Osasuna when Laudrup plays a no-look pass, scoop pass, yeah. and it, it bounces onto Mario's foot, and he just cushions the volley over. Yeah, I mean, just... Laudrup, <laughs> Laudrup's about another. Laudrup's a really interesting, kind of underrated genius, I think. The, if you look at the tribute, I always think it's interesting to look at tributes from, from people who've played alongside them, and Laudrup... Possibly goes higher than anyone on that list. It's a bit like Paul Scholes, actually, the, the kind of extent to which people gush over and make you think maybe I haven't seen it all here. You know.
0: Uh, again, I don't want to sort of get too parochial, but it was around the time when I think Loudrup was being mentioned as a as a possible Everton manager before kuman came, and I said to Jesper, I "said Have you seen Michael Loudrup play any football?" <laughs> and He said, was he good? I said, was he good? And then you get his greatest hits on YouTube. Get your phone out, yeah. The the breadth of skills that he had, um, yeah, exactly. You know, Platini, Laudrup; these were the greatest European players. I was Cruyff was just that little bit before my time, uh, as was Beckenbauer, uh, Müller, lesser, so, But Müller was a, a very specific kind of player. But Michael Laudrup, Michel Platini—they are right, right up there with the very best European players of my lifetime.
2: Cruyff's theory was that Laudrup wasn't a killer. You know, had, it, had he been born in poverty, he would have been. Like a too, from...
1: too middle class. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. what his problem was.
2: But it's quite interesting, you know. It comes back to that. Mar- Maradona called it bronco, which is that kind of raging anger that motivates you. And I think yeah. a lot of the great players do have it. But yeah, I, the, no, the, I,
0: the Favelas, think... the Favellas of Denmark. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. The breadth of his skills is the thing that's really interesting. And also, there aren't many players from that era who look kind of not. Uh, it's not quite right to say they don't look. Players from then don't look awesome now, but you know things age and move on whereas La- a lot of things Laudrup does a bit like early Romario act uh, Ronaldo actually kind of still make you go bloody hell you can you can barely imagine Iniesta doing it okay so yeah,
0: there's but 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 he was an aesthetically beautiful human being as well i mean i don't want to get homoerotic about this but heavens above he was a beautiful man
1: a beautiful side parting always looks good on a man <laughs> the, uh, the, so yeah the um, so that's uh, say a journeyman but yeah i suppose you don't think of these players as journeymen so but he is one but yet it was a good excuse to talk about him. Of our course, as, as a final... Rules. Sorry? Our pod, our rules. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, you don't like it, you can listen to... Please don't listen to anything else. But yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> so, no, no, come back. The last point about this, before we finish the episode for this episode, is that he's now, of course, a senator in he, Brazil. He had, there
2: was a great interview with him in 442 a few months ago, and he's still raging as usual. He was one of the few who was really against the Olympics and the World Cup, but now he's telling everyone I told you so. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. I think he's a senator and... But better become a congressman or something. Um, yeah, quite interesting. But he scored
0: a thousand goals as well, famously, didn't he? He did. Well, I he don't claims, know how many of those? Yeah,
2: it. I'm never sure about how many of those count. You know, from kick around on but, the beach. Because there's another yeah. guy called Tulio Maravilla who was part of the big king of Rio. Um, battle in 95 with Romario and how to go show and i think he claims to have scored about 800 and everyone kind of takes it as a joke but i mean he did he scored a load of goals and one, one last point of Romario it's quite interesting that he famously loved going out he didn't drink but he was always in nightclubs he said it made him play better um and he played until he was 40 so maybe there's a moral in that story you know interesting he played beach football after that didn't he yeah. probably yeah they've already the culture there is really huge i'm not certain certainly did but yeah i'm sure interesting. But, i mean, they're always playing the, there anyway.
1: Interesting, the party that he's actually a senator for is like a really small party. I think it's is quite it? interesting. Yeah, they've got like three seats in the Senate. They call the Brazilian Labour Party. But they've changed the name to Podemos, so they're this kind Do of, sort, think, of well, sort of centre left, but quite small. I, I mean, we're talk about
2: football now. It was a really. Good, it was a really good. I forget which four for two. It was only a couple of months ago. It was a really good interview. It's worth having a look if you are into that kind of thing.
0: Do you think um, when he's voting, going into the yay or nay lobby, that all crowds of people going one way or the other and he just weaves through and he's in? <laughs> <first aid. laughs>
1: if they have such things in, uh, in Brazil, yeah. I don't know. That brings us to the end of this episode. I hope it's, you've enjoyed it. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Rob.
2: A delight. Uh, we will and a be privilege.
1: back next week with Rob Bagchi to talk about uh, Howard Wilkinson's leads. Oh, great stuff. See you all soon. Take care.
0: Bye